Over the past seven weeks, we've shared conversations with dancers who move and inspire us in a new series called Off Season Chats. Before we truly wrap up Off Season Chats, we have to bring it to a close OTB style. We'll reflect on what we've learned over the course of these conversations and leave with a call to action. Let's dive right in. Our first off-season chat was with Mumbai-based Bharatanatyam dancer, curator, and entrepreneur, Kirtana Ravi, who spoke about crowdfunding and craft. Charlotte-based Odissi dancer and academic Kauslavi Sarkar brought her own enterprising approach to decolonizing academia and minds in the second episode. We then had a special two-part bilingual episode with Sai Venkata Gangadhar, who reflected on dancing in the age of social media and using dance to uplift and empower communities. We expanded our conversation beyond India's borders by speaking with Taji Dayas about Kandyan dance, her family's legacy, and long-term sustainability. Our last featured guest, New York City-based Brinda Guha, dropped wise fruit about embracing multiplicities and building dance futures. Spoiler alert! We will be discussing our takeaways from these conversations extensively, so if you haven't had a chance to catch up on these conversations, you might want to listen to the rest of this episode after you do that. So let's jump right in. Kieran, what did you learn over the course of OSC? I think there are four key ideas that kept coming up in the series of conversations. The first thing that we had noticed was sustainability in the dance field and in practice, technology and its impact on dance as we know it and performance the process by which one cultivates their craft and artistic voice and trusting that process. And I think the last important thing was community building. And each of the artists touched upon these things in their own unique way. What I definitely loved was how distinct each perspective was and how the wisdom that each of these artists were sharing was coming from their own life experiences as well as the particulars of the artistic traditions to which they belong. But there were these common themes, but the vantage point from which each one of these themes were discussed was very unique for each person. So if we were to take this into a structured conversation about what we've learned, why don't we start off with first sustainability? So in Kirtanas, for example, she talked about sustainability in terms of curation as one of the tools to consider when creating your own space and dance. What I loved about Kirtana's perspective was she was really bringing her expertise from the marketing space to think about who is the audience, where are the sources of funding coming from, how can we incentivize the usage of those funds, how can we be enterprising to make sure that the people who are investing in a particular event or in a particular art form are getting their ROI. And this was a bit of the sausage making that I think many times we don't get to hear about. And I know as someone who has been involved in nurturing a small cultural arts platform in the Richmond area, I was taking notes <laughs> because having had conversations with various organizers, we all have some of the same challenges. How do you bring an audience? How do you break even or maybe turn a profit? 
How do we set it up in a way where the burden is not on the artists that we're bringing on stage to not only bring the art on stage, but also have to fund their own travel, maybe even have to fund the platform so that it can exist? It was really helpful to learn not only that she had the same challenges, but also how she has tried to navigate these challenges and how her approach has evolved over time. Yeah, she pivoted. And I think the other thing that was really key was learning to make it into a sustainable practice by replication. It's one thing to set it up and have it work one time, but how do you have it work multiple times? And I think that's where a lot of us, we mean well, but we tend to focus on just the now versus what's coming up afterwards. I remember Kirtana says, what now, what next, what new? And that is all part of the idea of sustainability. So you have a system that you've created. Now, how does it replicate itself? And how does it also transfer from you to somebody else? And I think those are key things about sustainability that we don't always think about when we're just focused on performance in terms of the dance ecosystem as a whole. Continuing the conversation, say, into the other episodes about sustainability, some of the dancers talked about what does it mean to be young in this field right now, and what does sustainability look like for them, with the influence of technology coming into that as well. Other dancers had talked about sustainability in terms of community building and ways in which they create community, whether it's in the digital space or in the real space. Another sort of takeaway I had with the theme of sustainability is that there's no one size fits all. There's no one right answer. And that's where the individual experience and the individual path each person carved out was one in which pursuing dance was sustainable for them. What I really appreciated with the conversation with Taji later on in the series was she was very forthcoming about the challenges of sustainability given the specific landscape in Sri Lanka for people who want to pursue a career as Candian dancers, but there's a limited range of options within that economy and how their own organization had to navigate how do they remain sustainable in the light of the pandemic and economic challenges and a vastly transforming digital landscape that doesn't necessarily mesh well with their medium of performance. And I think also the added variable, because Sri Lanka is going through a major economic and political crisis right now, is then what happens to the dance ecosystem there in these really turbulent and uncertain times? And what is the new government going to do to make sure that its cultural heritage continues on in their new systems? And I think that's a big question because it'll affect the Chitrasena Dance Company and the Chitrasena School of Dance at large. The other thing that I also found interesting is that from Kaustavi's interview being the academic in our series. What does that look like in terms of sustainability? Because we talked about creating systems within academia and higher education that are not just one-off cultural experiences in terms of South Asian dance at large, but meaningful experiences for dancers of various expertise levels and various training backgrounds. One thing that was really interesting to me about that was where her perspective converged with Kirtanas, where she was specifically saying, if we have class offerings for Odissi at a university level in an American university, you might have completely new students that dance form. But you might also have a kid who has been learning from age five, and now they're in college as an 18-year-old and have 13 years under their belt. And so how can we plan course offerings in the academic space to meet these different needs, 
just the overlap in how that has to be thought about from an academic's perspective was very interesting to me because I'd never thought about it from the university's vantage point. The other interesting thing which kind of confronts sustainability head on is the idea that most of the dancers had brought up was that the form is going to continue on regardless of the individual dancer. There's this whole argument in classical dance that the art form is bigger than the artist. I'm kind of conflicted because there is no sustainability without a community effort and communities made up of individuals. So yes, the art in and of itself can continue. You have to be able to sustain your practitioners, right? When there's equity in this field, more diverse voices can be presented. More diverse perspectives, more diverse ideas can come to the table. And when the bar of entry is so high that you need a certain number of advantages pushing you forward to even be able to set foot in a professional landscape for dance, it becomes much harder. And what that means is a, a narrowing of voices. And so that's something that wasn't called out specifically, but that certainly was in the back of my mind when I was listening to Gangadhar's perspectives yes. and his stories, because it was such an improbable path to dance. I mean, I was about to fall out of my chair when he said that he was told maybe he was more suited for singing, not dance, after his first class. So the idea that on day one of class, the volunteers were saying, you know what, maybe you're not made for dance. You should consider singing. That's amazing for me that we almost missed out on this really important voice in dance. Yeah, the really important voice. And it's not just him as an individual. His journey has opened up possibilities for many others. Yes. And I think also it puts into perspective in flesh and blood, forgive me for the graphic imagery, but all the things that are talked about in terms of sustainability, equity, accessibility, diversity, inclusion, and all that are kind of manifested in this story and in this interview in many ways. We talk in terms of theory about what we want to see in terms of DEI and social justice, but then to see it sort of play out in somebody's story it's very illuminating because it offers sort of a real world example, a, a tangible example of not only what can be possible, but also what it costs to get there. And also what are the challenges and what are the hardships that are associated with such a journey too. You can kind of see it in somebody's story. Whereas to theorize it, it's important. So several of our artists had also talked about you know, the idea of a scaffolding system where you have to have the artists, you have to have the healers, you have to have the protesters and everything that's part of this ecosystem to drive change. And so you have this kind of framework, but then you have to see what does this look like in flesh and blood? And so that's what I took away from Gangadhar's two-part interview was that. And I also wanted to touch upon something else in sustainability, burnout. For example, having to explain everything about yourself you know, that gets exhausting after some time. So there's burnout. One of the generative practices that was put forth, say, in Brinda Guha's interview was this idea of knowledge exchange about our art form in a truly generative and egalitarian way. I'm not going to spoon feed you and serve you knowledge. I'm going to present my art form in all its multiplicity. I will give you some lifesavers, but you have to also take an interest. You also have to do the research as well, and you have to participate in this knowledge exchange alongside. Otherwise, it leads to a one-sided burnout. 
What was really beautiful about closing with the conversation with Brenda was over the course of the previous interviews, the various facets of sustainability came out, the economics of it, the personal journeys, you know, how does it work in the performing space? How does it work in the allied arts? How does it work in academia? And how does it work from an education perspective? All of that was there. But Brenda kind of pulled it all together in a beautiful way to just say, here are some concrete things that you can do. And I'm going to leave it there. You should listen to this episode. Take notes. Promise you I did. With that, you want to jump into technology? So where do we begin? One of the things that was brought to my attention, because I have kind of a slightly cynical view of technology, because most of my professional career in dance has been predicated upon live performance. So I have a slightly cynical point of view until I listen to Gangadhar's thoughts about it. He represents somebody who is the next generation in dance. So I learned a lot from that about how technology democratized space and how technology also enabled people to find their own people in dance. And it changed the notions of gatekeeping. So instead of having, you know, cultural institutions and individual patrons and all that as gatekeepers, we have an Instagram algorithm that works as a gatekeeper to an extent. But for the most part, I feel like People have been able to find each other. And also many listeners out there, you've reached out to us via social media as well. And it was great to be able to connect with you and maybe form a burgeoning community of Off the Beaters. I know that's a horrible name for... Own it! This group, because it's... All right, y'all, if you've got a better... (laughs) If you've got an alternative to Off the Beaters, we want to hear it. Please, (laughs) please, share with us. We would love to have a cute name for you all. Beatniks. Beatniks. That's a little old school. That's like from the 60s. So I I do want to say, even from a technology perspective, this is the second episode that we are recording face-to-face. Yes. Our entire series has been enabled by technology. It's because of the internet and Zoom. If you're listening, please fund us. Please (laughs) sponsor us because Zoom made this possible. But seriously, we had conversations with folks around the world because of Zoom. And the internet access, we ship off our podcast to editors we've never met physically in Mm -hmm. person who help us with the production magic. Thank you, We Edit Podcasts. We affectionately call you Weed It. (laughs) Yes. But also, to bring it back to the interviews, just like technology has helped, you know, reshape networks and democratize space, just like it's connected people and helped alternative online communities form beyond geographic boundaries and even beyond boundaries of a single dance form. It has introduced challenges because it's a new medium with very different parameters. I hadn't quite considered the extent of challenges that going from a live performance space to a digital space might have posed for Candy and Dance until Taji, you know, kind of laid out how it was almost paralyzing because they're predicated on that live drumming and the conversation with the percussionists. That just doesn't translate into an online medium. The other challenge that is there is that the algorithms of social media have made it very difficult for, say, a full-length performance or a full-length item 
in South Asian dance, which is usually at least three to four minutes long at the very minimum, to have that crack the algorithmic code is very difficult. And so as a result, most people end up making very small snippets of dance, which reduces the expansiveness of the art form into a minute clip. I know Gangadhar had talked about the challenges of doing that. Daji had talked about watching and learning from other people online. What do you focus on? Maybe it's a specific mudra. Maybe it's a specific moment in a dance performance that you zoom in on. But regardless, it just challenges you to think very differently about the way in which you practice and present an art form. I know the point that Kaustavi had brought up was she countered the isolation that was kind of forced because of the pandemic by having these online live Instagram conversations. And honestly, even this own venture, this podcast was in a way a response to live spaces going away. It's also a response to technology because I think one of the things that appealed most to me about doing a podcast, because I admit until pretty recently, I wasn't really into podcasts, but the idea of visual fatigue and the idea that we can engage a different sensory modality through podcasts without the visual aspect of it and just the audio actually turned out to be quite an appealing thing because several listeners, including my own dance teacher, Sujata Srinivasan in Cleveland, she had mentioned to me how convenient it was to be able to consume dance content while doing things like the laundry or cutting vegetables or driving, and you don't have to stop and watch a screen. She said it was a very engaging way to still dance without having to engage in the visual aspect of it. And so that's where technology also has its challenges, but it also pushes us towards trying different ways to engage artistically and to engage with the greater community through art. Now, to navigate the pitfalls of snippet culture, though, and this was, I think, said by multiple people, we have to take it back to the basics. Discipline, practice, and... Craft. Craft, yes, craft. Girthana was very open about her shift from having a professional career in the marketing industry to becoming a full-time dancer was to maintain these hours and say, just like I go to my job at, you know, at a certain time and then put in a certain number of hours, I'm going to do the same thing for my dance and use that same rigor and discipline that you would take to a quote unquote nine to five to this too. And that's what gave her the time and the space to hone in her craft. There is also this idea of what happens when life happens with dance. You have a situation, for example, Kirtana became a mother. And suddenly this whole nine to five kind of mentality about dance went out the window. And then COVID happened. That went out the window. So it's also coming to terms with the fact that sadhana or riyas doesn't have to always have a finite form and it's fixed. Dance is a part of you. It's baked into you. It's not going to be stripped of you, as Brinda had said. It's not armor that you wear. And it's part of the multiplicity of your being. It's one of many aspects of you. What does this mean in terms of your dedication to craft and to practice? It means that dance is always going to be part of you, but it has to be in service to you and to the life that you live. And so it can't be at the expense of some other part of you, but sadhana has to be worked in. It can be flexible as long as it happens. You know, for many of us who work full time, for example, I don't have dedicated time in a day where I can just be in a studio from nine to five. That would be lovely, but 
I will constantly be thinking about dance or doing something with dance. It may not necessarily be full-blown practice of ardavuz, but it'll be something like I'm thinking about a jati. I have a choreographic idea. Maybe I might do five minutes of a movement, but it happens almost every day. Some sort of engagement with dance. I think that's sadhana. Yes. I think the other thing that came up was cultivating your own voice, finding your niche, finding the way in which you can engage with your art form, with how it brings out your best self. I know with Gangadhar, that was very much deciding, I'm not going to go for a government job. I'm not going to go for a private job in a corporation. What I'm going to do instead is get my MA in Kuchipudi. What I'm going to do instead is continue teaching at my teacher's institution. What I'm going to do instead is continue producing content that's highlighting the work that I've put in. And that sort of intentionality in the process, even when there was no guarantee of outcome, was something that he very beautifully laid out. I think similarly, Gaussavi talking about why she found academia. Yes. That was a very different journey, different path to dance, but it was also based on finding her own voice, finding out how does she want to engage with her form and with the community. And every one of these stories showed that the process to cultivate an artistic voice required intentionality and it required open-mindedness. And craft building. I think at the end of the day, an artistic voice finds even more strength if the foundation is very good, whether it's in work ethic or whether it's in technique. There's many people who were prodigiously talented when they were young, and that's great. That's a blessing. But if you don't have the work ethic and the dedication to craft and curiosity, it leads nowhere. It's just technique. Where is the potential for artistic voice without curiosity? And that's where the whole idea about dance and life come into play. Because you live life and dance is part of it. Dance is an important part of your life and it's an important part of who you are, but that's not the whole story. What else about you is special? I mean, to quote Brenda, if you take dance away, what's left is your humanity. The space might go away. Maybe the physical abilities go away. Maybe opportunities go away. But nobody can take away your dance from you. Once a dancer, always a dancer. Embodied knowledge, and it can't be stripped away from you. And this is an important concept because a lot of times, especially in the rhetoric that we hear today about lineage and appropriation, yes, we have to be mindful dancers and we have to be conscious of all this. But at the same time, we also have to remember that some of us have spent decades in a dance style. And to hark back even to before off-season chats to our episode on embodied practice with Dr. Yashoda Takor, what she had said is that nobody has the right to rip that off of you. But Brinda is taking it a step further, saying nobody can rip it off of you. But it's what we do with it and the intentionality behind it that we have to be responsible about. And I think that's where the future of dance is. It's not that we suddenly have people stop dancing, but we have to rethink about what is dance actually doing for the greater community, which brings us to community building. Now, one piece that I want to tease out before diving into community building is curiosity, mm. because it's important to community building, and it's also important to trusting the process. And to technology to an extent, because there's potentiality there. What's meta going to look like with dance? <laughs> yeah. We have to be confident in what we know, but we also have to be confident 
in confronting what we might not know head on, and we've got to meet it with curiosity. Again, to quote Brenda, we can be held accountable by a community of our peers and our elders, and we can also model an egalitarian and a generative way of engaging in our art, jumping from curiosity to what we've been dancing around all of this conversation, the idea of community building. One thing that got wiped off right off the bat was the possibility that community is something fixed and rigid because there are multiple ecosystems in play here. And what it means, especially in the global technology-connected reality that we live in, there's multiple ecosystems in play. We are constantly having to do things in ways that have not been done before. Constantly. I mean, just thinking about in our own lifetimes from the 80s and 90s to the early 2000s with the infancy of YouTube and Facebook to this smartphone-powered era that we've been living in now, where we can instantaneously connect with people from around the globe, the number of possible people we can reach with any piece of work. I mean, when we see something online and it's got hundreds of thousands of views or even millions of views, I really struggle to understand it. Because what hall can we think of? What performance space can we think of in real life that's that wide? With that really quickly shifting landscape, we have to make micro decisions at every step of the way of how do we maintain what we think is most important from our tradition and from the legacies to which we belong? And how do we transform to meet the need of the moment? and to shape the way we move forward. Taji had made an interesting point when she was talking about the ecosystems in Candy and Dance. If we don't support the older generation, we have no inspiration for us, That's for right. the next generation. That's right. And supporting not only just the dancers who are the elders in the community, but also the mask makers, the drum makers, the costume designers, the tailors, the traditional artists that make up Candy and Dance. And there was one thing that also really struck me about this idea of technology and community building. When we went in to look at the analytics for this podcast recently, it's mind-boggling to me that even in our small podcast ecosystem, Off the Beat, has been streamed in 30 countries. I thought the vast majority of our listeners were going to probably be in the U.S. and maybe India to the extent because of our respective networks. But I was really surprised to find a small cohort in Spain, in Norway, in France, Russia, and in South America, you know, so Africa. And those are places where there are dance communities. So it's very interesting to see how these kinds of things form in the diaspora. And so this is where community building was touched upon as this wondrous thing by all five of our guests, because it's something that is truly essential to the sustainability and to the transformation and to the evolution of our respective dance styles. Though... I don't think anybody made it sound that glamorous. Because <laughs> I, I, I think this is hard work. It is. You're going through the wilderness, borrowing that from the brilliant Dr. Brene Brown. Please don't come for me. Um, <laughs> but, you, you know, you might not know what that outcome is going to be. It's about trusting the process, but also trusting the community yes. and trusting the art 
And part of that was very beautifully crystallized with Brinda, the necessity to bring together the wisdom and the experience and the infrastructure building of the older generation with the vision and the savvy, the savvy and the urgency, urgency, yes, of the next generation. And the other thing that we talked about with community building is that these very real questions about the nature of gatekeeping, the casteism, the colorism, the heteronormativity, all these things that are, quote unquote, the problems of South Asian dance. These are questions that are very urgent and they're being asked by everybody at the same time. And these kinds of questions cannot be answered in a silo. These are questions that can only be answered by a community that's engaged with one another and a community that also holds each other accountable. If it were easy, it would have already been done. Yes, but this kind of thing cannot happen, as we had said several times, in five years. It starts now. It's going to be a continuous effort from generation to generation. I feel like it's starting now to an extent, but I think that it is going to take a few generations. And so the other thing about community building, which I think is really key here, because technology has made it very easy to connect, I feel like community building, even through collaboration, is far easier now. I think the other thing, though, is it's not just about our own gains as artists mm. and what we can enjoy, great benefits of having a community. It's also our responsibility to our community. Yes. And that is something that everyone touched on from their particular sphere. Girtana was talking about, you know, living in, in Mumbai and wondering why aren't there spaces in Mumbai to highlight and feature the brilliant Mumbai-based performers? Why was it always bringing in artists from other places? Gaustavi was talking about building a community in dance academia that recognizes the contributions that Indian classical dance forms can bring to any dancer. Because there are things within South Asian dance practices that could enrich all dancers. And this is also a community effort because a community also has to lobby for this. A community can serve itself and serve its artists by providing rich content, as you had said. Unfortunately, to be able to infiltrate such institutions, especially in U.S. higher academia, we have to put in the work as South Asian artists to come together and say, hey, we have a voice and our art matters and this is why it matters. You cannot just insert us as a cultural tick box or a one-off experience because it's a whole pedagogy. I'm actually going to share something that a fellow alum from my alma mater, the College of William & Mary, said in a performance that was meant to be an exercise to hold the college accountable for how it served minority students in theater and dance, as well as show how products of those theater and dance departments were doing in their careers. And actor Jamar Jones said, I was hungry too, but I wanted to make sure others got to eat. Mm. Referring to, you know, having opportunities as an African-American man in a very Eurocentric theater department and, and reflecting on the work that he and his fellow students did to build organizations 
student organizations that provided opportunities for more multicultural performances. And I'm going to say it again, because this really stuck with me. I was hungry, but I wanted to make sure others ate too. That is the whole idea of community building in a nutshell, in a beautiful metaphor. Coming to Gangadhar, there were two key takeaways that he said that really hit home for me. One was, what he said was that his guru, Sandhya Rajgaru, said, e generation ki meaning correctly for this generation, being apt, being savvy, but presenting work that meets the call of the moment. and. Yes. That doesn't mean fan service, but it's truly understanding what is the need of the moment. And I especially loved how the need he identified was he recognized that his journey into the world of dance kept him focused on a purpose-driven life that kept him out of trouble. And that also he wants to use the dance now to help others who are facing such troubles. For example, he explicitly talked about addiction. And addiction is a huge problem worldwide, especially among disenfranchised communities. And so what he was describing of what he and his colleague Lakshmi were doing was to teach young boys dance to keep them off the streets. There's a lot of arts programs here, especially in New York City, which have that philosophy in mind. And it's refreshing to see that in a South Asian dance paradigm as well. The fact of working in New York City has really expanded what I can see is the power of dance. Many of us are from privileged backgrounds who come into Indian classical dance. And this is where I feel like we have our blinders on about certain things with dance. And so this is where cultural violence becomes a huge thing that Brinda had touched upon, for example, in terms of who are the gatekeepers and practitioners of the style. But what rooted the whole conversation was Gangadhar's desire and his artistic vision to be able to transform and uplift the community from which he comes from through dance. And that's very powerful. And that was not only as a dance educator, but also by expanding and extending the repertoire so that it's accessible for somebody who might not meet the definition we have in the Shastra of what a sabha is that's sophisticated and elite and has access to... A sahirdaya. Yeah, exactly. And I'm deliberately using the Sanskrit term here for those who are reading into performativity. Coming to Taji, what was interesting was she laid out the entire arc of history with candy and dance of how her grandfather and her grandmother had very deliberately reshaped the context and the costume that they utilized for candy and dance to bring it to the stage and to give it prominence in a way that ensured that it would continue and that it would be supported and it would be tied and revered as a part of Sri Lanka's cultural identity. And coming to the present time, she talked about the challenges of the specific landscape in the community where you might have students of candy and dance who are trained, who might even get higher education. And some of the challenges that there are not yet clear solutions for, how do they make sure they don't end up doing a desk job if what they want to do is dance? 
just grappling with the questions, how do we make it sustainable? And how do we support this community, whether it's the folks who want to be dancing or the folks who belong to the allied arts that are part of that ecosystem? And the ecosystem also includes people who are not necessarily artists, but are part of the fabric of the community of dance. Those who are spectators, those who are patrons, those who have organizations, reaching out to them as a community versus an individual is very powerful. There's a whole community behind here that we can support versus that one artist. A lot of powerful changes can happen when we're a group versus one strong voice and nobody backing that voice. I think the other thing that Taji shared over the course of her conversation were different examples of quote-unquote non-traditional ways of finding community. For instance, their dance company's collaboration with Rithyagram, their collaboration with filmmakers and the festivals that they were curating to pay homage to stalwarts of the allied arts. These are all just different examples of what it means to nurture a community. There's no one single way. There's no one single model, which brings us to Brinda, who talked about at the individual level with her own journey from a systemic perspective. And as a political science nut, I was on a cloud nine. The other thing that, that she made sure was her call to action was to vote. To be civically engaged as an artist is equally important as to investing in your craft. The two do not have to be mutually exclusive. In fact, they cannot be mutually exclusive. They have to go hand in hand. What we do is enabled by the community we live in. The ground on which we dance is enabled by the community we live in. Yes. You know, I live and work out of a community that does not look like me, that sometimes is a little bit confused seeing me, and yet it is that community that makes my practice possible. And it's the history of that community in which I live that has enabled where I dance and what I dance when I participate, when I own my space there, both in acknowledging how they have supported me, whether or not they realized it, and how I want this symbiosis to move forward, I've become an indelible part of this geographic community. And, you know, I was sitting here listening to Brenda talk about the particular dynamics of, of the community in New York City were so transformational for her in her own growth. And I was sitting here thinking, what can I do in Richmond, Virginia to create that kind of a generative community? And again, it's not something I can do on my own, but that also doesn't mean I opt out. I work between two states, New York and New Jersey. Even though I am six miles from New York City, the culture of arts is very different in New Jersey versus New York. They're both rich compared to other parts of the country, like I'm from Missouri, for example. But the ecosystems are entirely different. So in a place like New York City, there is lots of opportunities, but lots of competition. So in that ecosystem, there is a lot of hustling that happens. In New Jersey, there is hustling that happens, but it's also a bit different because it's based upon communities in which you live. Whereas New York City is kind of like a cohesive unit with differences between the different boroughs. 
But by and large, for example, the Department of Education in New York City is quite centralized. New York State Council on the Arts is quite centralized. We have a New Jersey State Council on the Arts as well. But a lot of funding for the arts is predicated upon whether a township or a county prioritizes it. The dynamics of that in terms of community building are very interesting. And Brenda touched upon that as well. It's very interesting to see how dance or a dancer makes of that community in which they're physically part of. When I was in college, I never stopped practicing dance. But I also really didn't know how to navigate my relationship with dance in community with everything else. And I had a professor ask me, Amea, why aren't you dancing? His name is um, Professor Tang Lawakwas. And I was affronted a little bit, to be honest with you. I said, what do you mean, why aren't I dancing? I am dancing. But I'm sitting here thinking, I drive back to Richmond every week to take rehearsals for students. You know, I teach one or two students locally. I do this. I do that. I'm running through the list in my head. But what he was saying when he said, Amea, why aren't you dancing? Is why aren't you owning space here on this campus as a dancer? And why aren't you bridging together your identity as a dancer? with your identity as a William & Mary student. And then he gave me the opportunity to do that by insisting very nicely that I register for his course on South and Southeast Asian performance and folklore. He enabled me to share my embodied practice with them. And I didn't know then what I have been learning in the 10, 11 years since that This is another way to build community. My contrasting experience in Boston University was that my identifier on college campus, especially by the dean of students, Dean Elmore, was that I was a dancer. I was like, no, I'm a neuroscience student. It's like, no, you're a dancer. Because I was dancing actively as part of the community. But I didn't know it was community building at the time. I didn't realize it. And I didn't understand that the identity of a dancer and my identity as a student don't have to be mutually exclusive. But it was the catalyst for me to start really considering dance as a professional career because there was community that I had built through, you know, BU Theme. I didn't start the organization. We helped build it up. And it's now in its, I don't know, 15 years since I've left college, I think. It's grown into this huge thing. So one of the things that's really surprising is that community building among the next generation of college students has taken all these small little Indian classical dance groups and made it a thing like Bhangra and Ras are in competition. I'm recently, you know, taking private lessons for a student who wants to audition for Berkeley's Indian classical dance team. And I saw their work and oh my God, I was blown away. It's actually, it's really good. And they were coordinated, they were well-trained. And I never thought I would ever see something like that for Indian dance or Indian classical dance in college. And that's the power of community building. Now it's a thing that's on par with like the Bhangra dance teams and the Foganas and the Garbarases that have been around for longer. But to see Indian classical dance community built like this in college is just astounding. I want to turn the conversation a bit. I think it's obvious from what we've discussed so far that we very much agreed with the key takeaways for these four themes. And, and, you know, as we've shared our own individual journeys 
and our journey with this podcast has also been in service of these same four themes, you know, sustainability, technology, trusting process, and community building. But I did want to ask you, was there anything across these conversations that was difficult for you to hear and that kind of maybe caused a <laughs> a want to push back? Oh, definitely. One of the things that I've noticed, not only in this podcast, but just me in general, when I'm facilitating conversations, I tend to go with the flow and want to make the person feel like they're supported. And sometimes it comes at the expense of what I really think. And oftentimes it could be oppositional. So I'm glad that you asked that, Amea, because I'll be honest, I come from a philosophy that is very educative and very willing to share knowledge openly with people. And whatever somebody asks me, I will give them as much as I can. I come from a place where I want to be generous with knowledge. And so with Brinda's interview in the second part, when she talked about why are we over-explaining dance and all, and everything's becoming a lecture demonstration, to my own personal experience of being ridiculed for my style of comparing, which tends to want to give information in rather large quantities to an audience. When she said that, I was really taken aback at first. I'll be honest, I had a very visceral reaction. I had to stop for a second and listen very carefully. She wasn't saying you shouldn't be educative, but you also shouldn't spoon feed and serve people. People also need to be responsible and invested in what you're doing, and you don't have to always explain yourself. And I thought about it, and yes, there are times where it's truly exhausting to explain what it is that I do. Honestly, I had to step away from the conversation for a few days to kind of just be able to listen once again and see if I need to completely change my point of view or can I push back. I kind of want to take the middle ground because... I want to continue being educative. A lot of what I've been doing lately has been almost lecture demonstration style, but I've also danced and that's worked for me. So I also want to continue being unapologetic about my desire to be educative. But I also want to take into consideration my own well-being in the process of being generous. Because some audiences, for example, who are learned have the resources to be able to say and Google what is a bowl, like as we had talked about in Brindas. When I was working on Vaishravana, which is dance theater piece that I did on Kubera for Ramapo College, the prompt for me was, can you create some sort of resource guide for the audience to understand some of the terminology and some of the terms and the places and characters that you're mentioning in the work? So I kind of created a glossary. When Brinda had started to talk about this, like, oh my God, did I just do too much for these people because they can Google this stuff? And part of me is like, well, I'm not announcing it. I just presented the work. But they asked for this information up front and they just kept it as part of their brochure. I also want to curate some of the information that is out there because it may not necessarily be in service to the production. And you know what? I was part of the audience for that production. And my experience as an audience member was I could watch your show. I could go to these links and learn more with the context you've provided and then when the Q&A happened after the show, the questions were building on the resources that had been provided because people felt compelled to learn more. They had a jumping off point. With that, they came to you and they weren't asking, what is candy and dance? They were asking much more 
nuanced questions. And I think that was exactly what Brenda had proposed when she said, we have to do it in community because she was saying, you will provide the resources and they can start there. And then they can come and ask you, what was your artistic process? What is this? And, and I was sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, that's exactly what happened with Vaishravana. That was actually really cool for me. Thank you. No, so again, this was something that I didn't come up with myself. And that was also responsible of the director, Lisa Campbell. So that was what was challenging for me was like, how educative should I be? as an artist, and who should I be educative to? What was interesting for me was the statement that kind of came along with that, which was saying, you have to be confident in what you're presenting. And that was interesting for me, because initially, I also heard it as, don't be reading out these long, expansive explanations. But as she kept elaborating on her perspective, what clicked was that we should be mindful of how we might be putting ourselves into a box because we are trying to overly be accommodative of our audiences. Art is supposed to make you question. Art is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. So it makes sense to put something out there that you believe in and let them be uncomfortable by coming to something that's unfamiliar, potentially, and let yourself be uncomfortable because you might not have a guaranteed response. And this is the pushback with Rasa theory, for example, where there's a formula for everything. What challenged you in these conversations, Amea? The one moment where I really had to check myself and my reaction, and I will say one of the benefits of using the podcast format is you can't see what's on my face. So my face is very loud and very transparent, which gets me in trouble sometimes. But I had to hold myself in check and listen when Taji said the best advice that she had ever received was not to pursue higher education in dance in an academic environment. And this was coming for me purely out of my own experience. Higher education in dance was transformative for me in my practice and in giving me confidence in my embodied practice, giving me permission to trust my embodied practice. It was also giving me access to knowledge that I didn't previously have. So it was universally a positively transformative experience for me. So to hear someone feel like the best advice that they'd received was not to pursue education, it was hard for me. And I really had to just hold myself back and not try to counter, but instead to try to listen and understand her perspective and her experience. When she laid out her reasoning, it makes sense. For her. For her, it makes sense. And this is one of those things where there is no one size fits all. There is no one path. There is no template for making it. And we all start in different places with different toolkits in different capacity. And then through our journeys, we've got to augment what we have with what we need for where we're headed. If I were going to Singapore, I wouldn't pack a winter coat. 
Likewise, for Daji's goals, for her vision, for her journey, higher education didn't make sense. And that's not condemning my own need. And I will say need. I needed this. Because even similarly, Kaustavi had found herself as a dancer by being in higher education, too. So And Gangadhar, for that Gangadhar, matter. yes. And, and, you know, you've got confirmation bias, right? It was very easy for me to smile and nod knowingly when Gangadhar and Kaustavi were speaking about the importance of higher education in their own dance journeys. Because it's aligned with our own personal experiences. And that's why at Taji, her perspective is very needed because it counterbalances our own experiences with dance, right? Because she's a principal dancer and she is basically in the thick of professional dance performance. Absolutely. And one thing that I have tried really hard to maintain on this platform is generative conversation. And that doesn't mean that Kiran, you and I are always on the same page. In fact, many times when we start mapping out an episode, we have a very different set of perspectives that we're bringing together. You and I are aligned enough that it's not that difficult to find common ground. But to speak with this spectrum of artists who are in different places in their own career and who have walked very different paths from us in different ways, and to hold on to that same ethos in our conversation, that was important. And I'm glad I stopped the buzzing in my brain and listened. I always try to bring it back to how can we not bridge between our perspectives, but build into something that's actionable. Correct. So speaking of which, let's conclude today's episode and recap of all of the off-season chats that we've had with a call to action. A lot of my perspective comes from the fact that I've been tinkering away at finding an artistic voice, my greater purpose with dance and intention with dance. And I realized that I wanted to be able to dance in service to the greater community and to dance in a way that was authentically me, but also engaged with the community in which I'm in and the communities in which I would like to be part of. My call to action is to take your dance training and to take your sense of place in a community and bridge the two together by becoming both an active citizen and also an active dancer who dances in service to their life and to the community at large. If you've stuck with us this long, we have a special surprise for you. Here's a sneak preview of season two. In season one, we anchored each episode with a particular text and examined how it related to our embodied practice in our respective dance traditions. So this season, we decided to continue exploring embodied practice through repertoire, especially since much of the traditional repertoire in both of our styles is grounded in Carnatic music. Staying true to our OTB style, we'll still open with an introduction to the anchoring piece and then dive into the candid discussion. We'll close with a recap of what we've learned and a call to action. While Kiran and I were brainstorming for season two, our time often veered into geeking out about music and the musicality of the repertoire that we're drawn to. So we're inviting you to join us for the ride. We'll be discussing how each of us responds to the music of the pieces we're exploring this season. From there, we'll start sharing our thought processes for how we would dance the pieces. Through this exercise, we're hoping to learn about the tools 
the techniques, and the aesthetics of our respective styles and personal approaches. That way, we can better understand the nuances of interpreting music through dance. Today's episode of Off-Season Chats would not have been possible without the support and encouragement of our amazing listeners and the following people. We edit podcasts for audio engineering, Sangeeta Kaushik for graphic design of our logo, Arts Horizons for the recording space, and a very special thanks to Wesley Beeks and Bertel King Jr. Like what you heard? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services, subscribe to the podcast, and tell your friends about us so that more people can find this show. You can also join our conversation by following us on social media at Off The Beat Dance on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, or by visiting us at www.offthebeat.dance. We'd love to hear from you. Off-Season Chats is an Off The Beat production. Ah, 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 ah,